one thing I've learned about thyroid healthy eating is that it isn't just thyroid healthy. It's gut healthy. It supports our blood sugar balance. It supports our hormones. There is such a thing as hormone healthy eating as well as thyroid healthy eating. And there's so much overlap between the two that I think today's show is going to be really interesting for any of you out there who are both dealing with a thyroid issue like hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's or Graves or living without a thyroid and who are also in the season of life where we're dealing with some hormonal fluctuations. We'll be speaking with Dr. Alan Christensen, a naturopathic endocrinologist and very well-known author and thyroid expert. I've interviewed him multiple times. He's always so much fun to talk to. He has the world's best laugh, and we always laugh a lot when we chat. And I also really enjoy talking to Dr. Christensen because he also loves to cook. And he just published a book called The Hormone Healing Cookbook, where he tackles these really common hormone symptoms that also happen to be thyroid symptoms, such as weight, fatigue, insomnia, brain fog. Dr. Christensen has some amazing practical tips and specific foods that you can use to help handle some of these common uh, hormone-related symptoms. We had such a fun and super informative conversation together. I can't wait for you to hear the show. So let's go ahead and dig in. Hello, thyroid drivers. Welcome back to another episode of Thyroid Healthy Bites, a weekly podcast dedicated to helping you live well and eat well so you can feel well. I'm Ginny Mahar, your host and the face behind the apron at hypothyroidchef.com. Hi, Dr. C. So good to see you again and have you on the show. Hey, Jenny. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. For the listeners, you might not know that I've interviewed Dr. Christensen a couple times before on my previous podcast, Thyroid Refresh TV. You can find those episodes on the Hypothyroid Chef YouTube page if you're interested. But today we're going to talk about a very pertinent topic for thyroid thrivers, which is eating for hormone balance. It's always great to connect with you, Dr. C. And when I saw that you have a new cookbook out, the Hormone Healing Cookbook, I knew it was time to have you on Thyroid Healthy Bites. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And I just wanted to congratulate you on this new book. And there's just, I've been, you know, drooling over some of the recipes in here. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a soup lover, so I turned to this um creamy broccoli pistachio soup. That I knew is that's where you're going. That's a real good one. <laughs> green on Somehow. green on green. It's just mouthwatering. I can't wait to try this. And there's starting to be a little bit of chill in the air. So we're getting excited for soup season. And the other one I really have to try is this uh, lentil avocado smash. That one's really good too. Yeah. yeah. For our YouTube viewers, I'm giving some sneak peeks here, but if you're uh, listening <laughs> to the podcast, you can also see some of these sneak peeks from the book. Uh, if you just click on the link that I'll share in the show notes to the book, it's the Hormone Healing Cookbook, 80 Recipes to Balance Hormones and Treat Fatigue, Brain Fog, Insomnia, and more. And it's awesome. I'm very excited for you and excited to talk about it on the show today. That's cool. 
Before we dive in, I'd like to share a little bit more about you with the listeners. Dr. Alan Christensen is a board-certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. So we're talking to someone who is very much a thyroid specialist today. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose recent titles include The Hormone Healing Cookbook, published just a few months ago, and The Thyroid Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured in countless media appearances, including Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He's also the founding president of the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians. So very excited to be here with you today. And knowing your background and being familiar with your other books like The Thyroid Reset Diet and The Metabolism Reset Diet, it just makes total sense to me that you would write this cookbook But I was hoping that maybe for some of the listeners who haven't met you yet, you could maybe tell us a little bit about your personal journey and what sparked your life's work as a naturopathic endocrinologist. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. And that's often so relevant to what we do. Um, uh, I was was adopted as a child, a wonderful set of parents in rural Minnesota, and I was not a healthy kid. You know, my birth mother wasn't really in a position to have a child and her issues affected me. I had seizures and complications from that. And by the time I entered adolescence, I was pretty overweight and, you know, lots of problems with my biomechanics, uh, I'm a pretty clumsy kid. And it frustrated me. You know, I really felt, I don't know, like an outcast and I, I couldn't do things other kids could do. And I, I turned to health books. You know, I was really into... Uh, space and science, but I realized I had to learn something new to improve myself and just do better in life. And so I, I did, and it was uh, fits and starts and not not easy, but things made a big difference. I improved my health quite a bit and, you know, reached some goals. And yeah, and I realized that that there was this big gap between what people knew and what they needed to know in terms of health. And it became just a real passion to try to close that gap. So yeah. So you became one of the, you know, like the people that you (laughs) went to for help and guidance in those books. Now people go to your books for help (laughs) and guidance. So that's very cool. (laughs) Kind of brings it all full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Well, one of the things that I really um, love about your new book, I mean, I'm a cookbook lover, obviously, um, but a couple things that really stood out to me about this are the meal plans. You've included meal plans for, you know, a lot of the most common hormone related symptoms like brain fog, fatigue, hot flashes, insomnia. And the other thing I love is that all the recipes are keyed for each of those symptoms. So if you're struggling with one of those things, you can go right to what recipes or what meal plan, you know, really can have specific nutrients to help with that. So I thought maybe we could start there and talk about those top hormone-related symptoms. What are the most common ones? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I've surveyed people for quite some time, and it's been rather perennial that these things come up. So weight and fatigue, uh, number one, number two. And weight can be pounds pack on for you walk by and breathe an ice cream cone, you know, and you're three pounds heavier. That's one. Or nothing drops without extreme dieting. And then the pounds just come right back on again afterwards. And then fatigue. So this is to where if you do even reasonable amounts of exercise or activity, you pay for it and you're wiped out afterwards. You know, you get drops at certain times of day, especially afternoon. Then we see sleep issues. Uh, You know, can't get to sleep, can't stay asleep, can't get good quality refreshing sleep. So insomnia, Um, hot flashes come up. 
And this is fascinating. People are often surprised to learn how much these, of course, apply to menopausal women, but the age, they're not just that age, and it's not even just women. So they're a big thing for both genders and a pretty wide range of ages. And they're a nuisance. They can screw up sleep. They can make you feel awful. And they're also a health risk. They're also a big thing you want to be aware of. And then last up would be brain fog. And this is one that is now one of the top complained of symptoms. The phrase was not even in my surveys until about six years ago. No one ever said that. But now it's talked about all the time. So this is the this is like the new one to hit the top five. But it's a big deal. You know, we've got to be able to easily recall names, you know, have words not be stuck on the tip of the tongue. Remember where we put our keys, you know, and also not just recall, but have proper creativity and have proper motivation and drive and enthusiasm and enjoyment. So these things are there when your brain's functioning well. Mm -hmm. Just the ability to communicate. Yeah. Well, and a lot of these, you know, top symptoms are symptoms that as thyroid patients, we are (laughs) intimately familiar with. But, you know, of course, thyroid hormones are just one facet of our hormonal picture. We've got our sex hormones, our stress hormones, so many different types of hormones and different ways that they that they interact, different ways the body produces them, the different ways the body can be affected by them. And hormonal changes really seem to affect how we feel. Like I, when I think of hormones, I almost feel like to some degree, they really determine our identity. And Mm. I was wondering if you could maybe talk us through how and why our hormone levels do that, how they change over time and how they can throw us for such a loop, especially as we age. (laughs) You know, determining identity, that was really cool. That's something I've not really heard before, but it makes perfect sense. That was a good insight. Yeah, so hormones are basically what regulates our body. Uh, when, When they can work well, things stay in balance. At any given moment, we're carrying out over 9,000 chemical reactions. And, you know, try to visualize like two or three gears that are meshing together as they're rotating. And now do that with like 9,000 and each one having, you know, thousands of teeth. And it's right. just I know this is not an easy question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just talking about just how, how complex the body is and how yeah. amazing it is that anything works at all, you know? But the hormones get credit for that. Hormones keep all these things in balance. So so yeah, they change. And there's certain pivotal life epochs in which they're expected to change, like when we enter into uh, uh, adolescence first off. And then the big transition is really perimenopause and menopause or andropause for men. And we think that the shifts occur then because our body is no longer in need of being able to reproduce. You know, kind of a curious thing, but we think that our genes are intentionally moving us out of the gene pool so we can, you know, not take away the resources from the younger members of society. So yeah, our, our genes change on purpose, our hormones drop off, and everything really shifts because of that. So it's almost like, you know, you get a you get a, a battery for your car and it's got a five-year warranty on it. And come year four and a half, it's gonna give out. And that's that's about what our 50s are for our bodies. The hormones change, we can't regulate as well. And now all of a sudden these things show up out of the blue. So it's it's about those big times in which hormones start to shift. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, it's never made biological sense to me to think about like expecting things like our libido to stay the same. 
when we're beyond the point of reproducing. I mean, it, do, yeah. it doesn't make sense in, <laughs> in nature, you know? Yeah. So interesting. Okay. So why don't we talk about food? How, let's shift gears into, you know, the yummy stuff. How, how can what we eat help us with hormone regulation? You know, this is a fun story. And I really had a lot of, I had a great time explaining this one, but yeah, we co-evolved with our food. We adapted with our food. And I think that we consider what food does in far too narrow of a spectrum. We think about food as giving us certain building blocks and that's true. And then giving us certain rate limiting necessary compounds of vitamins and minerals. That's all true, but it's so much more than that. We now know that this big range of phytonutrients contains all these signals that our bodies expect. Our bodies expect a little nudge from proanthocyanins, or they expect something here from a broccoli isolate. And with those things, we can do a good job regulating, but we, we depend upon them. And they're not vitamins, they're not minerals. The weird thing is, it's mostly these, these compounds that are a tiny bit toxic. They're things that if we were to isolate and take in huge quantities, they wouldn't be safe. But in the tiny amounts in food and in the context of all the other chemicals naturally occurring in food, what they do is they basically inspire our bodies to work better. You know, we, we get exposed to this little thing and we then compensate and become more effective because of it. Wow, that is fascinating. I love that concept too. And I've, you know, been um, reading about that myself and how, you know, more stressed plants like without where they have to rely on their own, um, you know, innate like pesticides and, and just all these different like uh, mechanisms that plants have evolved over time to protect them from other plants, to protect them from pests, to ensure their, you know, their evolution, their existence, their proliferation. Like it's really fascinating how those things can serve our bodies. Yeah. And there's this weird idea called hormesis. And what it means is that things in tiny amounts can cause an opposite like effect. It's not the same idea as homeopathy it kind of sounds like it, but they've shown, for example, like in the case of in the case of uh, broccoli, like it's got this thing called glucosinolate. And you mentioned about plants making pesticides. So glucosinolate is a pesticide and it, it kills insects. And it does that by damaging their own capacity to regulate by disrupting their hormone levels. And to us, high amounts of glucosinolate is hepatotoxic. It's dangerous to liver function. But the microscopic amounts as found in broccoli, not only are the small amounts not harmful, but they're actually helpful. So yeah, a huge amount would destroy our liver. None is neutral, but a small amount is helpful. A small amount is like giving your liver a workout. You know, your liver basically says, huh, it's a tough neighborhood out here. I better, I better get ready for, you know, better work hard today. I better do better than I would otherwise. I should be prepared. So yeah, yeah the net effect is positive. It it's, goes into that whole like botany of desire stuff. And then how, <laughs> you know, that was such a great book, by the way. I don't know if you ever read that, but, yeah. and then goes into how that like serves us. It's just nature is well, amazing. One real brief thing to add on to that. I think all too often we can get frightened of food. And there's a lot of times in which we can read about food containing certain things that's naturally there that sounds scary. And people can often now think that, oh, I need to avoid all these foods because they have these scary sounding phytotoxins or these anti-nutrients. And it turns out that these things are by and large 
acting as hormetic agents. That, that yes, they are toxic in out of context, but in context, they are good for us. So yeah, one message is mm-hmm. enjoy your food and the stuff that you know our grandparents ate, we shouldn't be frightened of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nightshades come to mind. Is that one example that falls under what you're referring to? Yeah. That's a perfect example, yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, I work with coaching clients and things who have identified, I am sensitive to these right now. And I, I flare up or maybe my arthritis gets worse with them or whatever, but across the board, does everyone need to avoid nightshades? Absolutely not. I mean, it really seems like it so often (laughs) comes down to the individual And some people might have a sensitivity to those, but there's also so many health benefits in those foods that we miss out on if we just avoid them for no good reason. And sometimes people are often surprised to learn that the best way out of a sensitivity is through a sensitivity. You know, in many cases, that thing itself in tiny amounts, tiny food servings, gently over time can be the best way to regain some tolerance again. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, (laughs) This is just kind of maybe a little sidebar here, but speaking, you know, when I think of like hormone healthy eating, one of the, you know, internet uh, trends that, you know, has, I don't hear about it that much anymore, but just curious is seed cycling something that you talk to your patients about? Does that have any scientific merit in your opinion? You know, seeds are healthy foods, lots of good stuff in there, lots of nice essential fats. And plants can have hormonal-like effects and plants can actually contain hormones. And to say that a plant is estrogenic or it has progesterone properties, it's true that it may have an influence upon our bodies in various ways. The idea that that eating a seed is like taking a hormone, however, you know, not, not so much. There's nothing bad about consuming a wide range of seeds and it's good at a wide variety of foods. But like in the case of hormones, for example, one would, if one needed progesterone replacement, you would cycle that in a certain way to overlap and work with the regular menstrual cycle. The idea that you'd have to have seeds only during one time or only during another, yeah, no no harm to that, but their, their effects are not as linear as actually ingesting hormones. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thanks for... Thanks for that. You know, I wanted to ask you to kind of zooming out uh, more big picture. One thing I really notice about human behavior, especially online, is we like to compartmentalize, right? We like to put things in these silos. Hormone health is over here and thyroid health is over here and weight loss is over here and gut health is over here. But we know that doesn't, you know, make sense in the body. That's not the reality. So we're all part of this interconnected system. Our bodies are interconnected systems, right? And you've covered all these topics in depth. So I wanted to ask you, like when you zoom out and you look at the entirety of your research, your writing, your whole body of work, what are some of the overarching food principles that really apply to all of it? As in like, what is eating for thyroid, metabolism, liver, gut, hormones? Like, what are some things that they all have in common that maybe are just like tenants to live by? Yeah. Yeah. Great, great one. Um, Really, it's a matter of thinking about what, what our bodies require and what benefits our bodies. And then also if there's any obstacles to the cure, things that are counterproductive along the way. And things we require, there's some things that we require and we're never going to run out of. We, we make them just fine. And some things we need from our diets. 
And then there, there's some things we need that are easy to get and some things we've got to think harder to obtain. So one thing that I've always mentioned is just the relevance of having a healthy intake of protein. Uh, no one gets deficient, but the amounts that are optimal for metabolism and muscle mass, you don't stumble on those. You've got to think about those. So that's one thing worth considering. And then I talk a lot about really knowing your body's need for fuel. You know, we, we need some, car some good carbs. That's, that's how we get fiber. You know, our flora depends upon that. We need a range of fibers. We need some good essential fats. So you need a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of fuel. And that amount varies per activity, per other factors, but we need a variety of all, all of those. And then the micronutrients and the phytonutrients. So in most cases, this is a matter of maintaining sufficiency. The one thing that's kind of odd in the thyroid world is the iodine story. You know, that's one to where those who have more of an intolerance, they can get more than they require. So that's kind of that obstacle thing. But yeah, avoiding any obstacles, getting the things that are necessary and making sure the body is just well-balanced is what that comes down to. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on the, the macronutrient uh, thing. And I was going to ask you about that. You know, you mentioned protein. Do you, when, when people ask you how much protein should I get, do you go with like the 30 grams per meal rule of thumb? Do you go by body weight? Do you have a kind of a general guideline that you like to go with for protein intake? Well, my first thought is always, you know, what, what is the concern for? And in most cases, when someone asks about that, they're talking about their weight, their metabolism. Those are often the biggest drivers. And we do know that protein intake is a big determinant of body composition, you know, how much lean body mass you have. And the better your lean body mass is, the easier it is to maintain a good body weight. So yeah, in those cases, there, there's such strong data that getting about a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, you know, one can measure their body fat, the remainder is lean. Women are often about 70% lean body mass, somewhere at 70, 80% lean body mass, somewhere around there. Men are often just slightly higher, but you can take your weight and multiply it by 70, 80%. And that's about how many grams would work well throughout the day for maintaining that. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Um, I was wondering, maybe we talked kind of about macro, sort of taking a macro lens and, and macronutrients. Um, one thing I was really interested in with your book was your focus on phytonutrients or plant-based nutrients. Can you talk to us about some of those and how they, maybe are there specific ones that come to mind for specific, um, symptoms? For sure. You know, and one thing I'd like to just preface the discussion with is I'll talk about particular phytonutrients, you know, what they do. I'm a little skeptical of there being one active ingredient. So just please mm -hmm. take it with a grain of salt. I'll sure. talk about beets, for example, and beets have compounds that affect nitric oxide metabolism, but the data is based really more on beets than upon isolates. So we know that things work and they have certain things that are probably part of why they work, but ultimately, like in the case of beets, the active ingredient in beets is beets. <laughs> right, know? yeah. I see it a lot to where we'll learn about a food doing something and thinking, oh, it's because of this constituent. And then we put that constituent in a pill and it doesn't work or it's harmful or it works differently. So it's fun to talk about the science of what does what. I'm happy to do that and I will. And I wrote a lot about that, but just know that ultimately it's really the food that matters, the whole food that makes the biggest difference. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you talked to, you mentioned brain fog earlier. Yeah. 
are there are there maybe you know looking at it that way are there specific foods like for brain fog for example that come to mind you know for sure and this is fun too so a question is how quickly can things help and how fast can they make a difference and some things like say you're talking about bone density well it's going to take a few years because it takes time for new bones to grow right but but some things are based upon rapid immediate ongoing chemical reactions so in the case of brain fog there's data saying that exposing yourself to certain culinary spices can no joke have instant effects on benefiting clarity and benefiting function one of the ones that I highlighted in the book was rosemary. Um, easy thing to find, easy thing to grow, lots of recipes in there with it. But they've shown that mental acuity and cognitive clarity can increase instantly upon, and this is, this is the thing too, not even just the ingestion and the circulation, just the taste, just the aroma of it can have these dramatic immediate effects. That's amazing. Turmeric kind of popped into my mind too when you were talking about that. Is that another another one that you would put under that kind of brain fog friendly list of foods? You know, fun thing, all the culinary spices are just superfoods and they're just like magic, magic remedies. They have so many benefits. You know, you could take almost any culinary spice and find so many ways it could help. And turmeric is one of the more central ones. Yeah, turmeric has many good useful effects. Okay, I have to ask about one particular plant food that I noticed in the book that's highly contentious in the world of thyroid-specific nutrition, <laughs> <laughs> but that you feature in the book. Can you guess what I'm going to ask you about? Give me three guesses, and I'm going to guess soy three times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bingo, bullseye. And I don't have to tell you this is a food that many thyroid experts do recommend we avoid. So can you talk yeah. to us as thyroid patients about your professional opinion on soy? Well, so here's my evolution um, on that. For quite a while, I was kind of indifferent, but at the same time, I was content enough to go along and say, look, if everyone's concerned about this, must be some good reason for it. And sure. I'm not proud of myself, but I didn't really do the legwork my, on myself, my own legwork. I just kind of went along with what was known and what was thought in those earlier stage of things. And again, I'm not proud of that. Uh, a dear friend I'd like to call out and give recognition to, Dr. Stephen Mousley, he reached out to me and he said, you know, I see all the thyroid people talking about avoiding soy, but I see so many studies about large health benefits. And we can talk details about this, but lowering the risk for breast cancer, lowering the risk for hip fracture, lowering the risk for heart disease. And these are things that the exact same audience needs to be concerned about, already is concerned about. And so basically Steve said, hey, look, if it really is that important to avoid for thyroid function, I want to know, but I want to make sure that I'm not having people avoid something unnecessarily because they could be missing out on some benefit. Mm -hmm. And it really struck me. And so I spent about boy, a month. And I read 50, 60 full-length research articles, and then also their citations as well. And I reached out to, you mentioned the third experts. I reached out to all the ones that I knew and all the ones even I didn't know. And I said, hey, here's what I'm up to. I'm just, I've got no agenda. I'm curious about this. Uh, tell me your sources for being concerned about soy. You know, give me the citations. Let me add them to the pile. I want to make sure I'm not missing anything. And so I did that beforehand and everyone gave me some sources or whatnot. And I went through everything. There was basically, I don't know how much depth I want to give here for you all, but there was three studies that sound like there may be a problem. And one group of studies was about when soy was first put into infant formulas. 
Now, infant formulas, these are babies to where they're obviously horribly dependent upon key nutrients and they got no other source of them. So it's really critical. And then also the proteins bind with minerals. So for example, infant, infant formulas have iron added and most are cow dairy based and that's a casein protein. And they've known for some time that casein has a certain binding affinity for iron. What that means is, I'm just gonna make up numbers, if you want a baby to get one milligram of iron and casein binds with half of it, you got to put two milligrams in there, right? Because half is going to get bound up. So they knew that about casein and iron. Now they didn't know that about soy and iodine. And so some of these first formulas, they gave appropriate amounts of iodine, but so much of it was bound that it wasn't getting absorbed. And there were some babies developing thyroid issues, but very quickly they pivoted and said, oh, wow, there's this binding effect we've got to re readjust the dosage like we do with iron. They did, no future problems. So that was one set of data. Now, the second set of data, I'm saying this because I want you to know that I left no stone unturned. Um, it was a pretty silly study that showed that siblings, so making this up, if a, if a, if a sister was on soy infant formula, the brother was thought to have a higher rate of autoimmune thyroid disease later in life. The sister didn't but it was thought the brother did. There was no plausible reason. There was no follow-up data. And the study was finally retracted later on, but it was there. So that was the second study. And this is, this is I'm already weeding through tons of studies that showed either no effect whatsoever or positive effects. These are all the ones showing any negative effect. The third study took people who had subclinical hypothyroidism. That's defined as an elevated TSH, but still a normal T4. So they're more at risk for developing thyroid disease. And the, the, the summary of the study said, high soy intake worsened subclinical hypothyroidism. I'm like, oh, wow, maybe this is the smoking gun. So I read the full study in detail. Now, the study had two groups of people with subclinical hypothyroidism. Curiously, both groups were recommended a high soy diet. Both groups were on soy supplements. One group was on a higher dose of soy supplements. Now, the group on the higher dose of soy supplements did have a higher rate of developing overt hypothyroidism. So that's kind of weird, right? They're already eating a lot of soy. They're taking soy supplements and more might've been worse. Now, here's the big wrinkle. What they failed to talk about was what was the rate of developing overt hypothyroidism? And how did that compare to the expected rate? So thankfully I had access to that data. The expected rate of conversion for a population like that was about 6.9% per year. If you've got a bunch of folks with subclinical disease, just shy of 7% are probably gonna get worse, all factors equal. In this study, both groups were below the conversion rate, the baseline conversion rate. The worst group was about 5.5%, and the better group was 5%. So out of context, the high soy was worse than the low soy. But in context, both groups had a lower rate of conversion than you would have expected with no intervention. <laughs> so those are the three studies after it was all said and done. Now there's countless other studies showing that soy had no relevant effects whatsoever on adults, on their rates of thyroid disease, on their rates of thyroid autoimmunity, everything you could think of. <laughs> Wow. And the data about soy being beneficial in terms of breast cancer risk, heart disease risk, bone density risk, that data is solid. And breast cancer risk, one of the most recent studies, 
took women who were known to have hormonally sensitive breast, they, they had breast cancer in the past, hormonally sensitive breast cancer. One group was given a high soy diet, one group was not. They stopped the study early because the group not recommended to have soy had a higher rate of recurrence and a higher rate of death than those recommended to consume soy foods. So the benefits are real and the, the soy being a bad thing, I tried to find it, it doesn't exist. Right, yeah. It really speaks to how important it is to, you know, for people like you to put an educated eye on the studies to interpret them and to look at the, the body of research and, and analyze it. And so thank you for that, you know, for that depth of your answer and explaining that. And also, you know, I think it's important for all of us to stay open-minded, you know, in this, when we're talking about nutrition, there's so many things that change over time. As far as the research goes, opinions have done the research has like proven and then disproven things, you know, it gets really confusing for people, but I think it requires that we also have the willingness to say, you know, I did used to think this way and I took a closer look and I changed my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And just because you've heard something 20 times doesn't mean that it's, that it's true. It just means that everyone's Absolutely. saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate hearing that. Um, so thank you. Yeah. We could do a whole, a whole show on that. Maybe that's another book coming up on your <laughs> roster. That That's a really big one. And, you know, and I just noticed it in your cookbook because there's a lot of recipes featuring like tofu and things. And you talk about it as, you know, how beneficial it can be for hormone health. And yeah. Yeah. So, so much of what happens with menopause is not really just a lack of hormone. It's really a wild, wild uh, deviation of hormones, big fluctuations of hormones. So plants have estrogens, but they're not the same as human estrogens and they don't even work the same as hormones. So phytoestrogens, they're not like taking birth control pills or not like eating plastics or not like taking estrogen replacement, they're estrogen regulators. So what they do, it's almost magical. The body has two main categories of estrogen receptors. We call these alpha and beta. And by and large, we like the alpha receptors to be activated. That means better bones, better brain function, healthier skin collagen, but we don't want the beta receptors to be overstimulated. That means uh, breast cell growth, you know, proliferation, precancerous changes. That means endometrial enlargement, you know, endometrial hyperplasia, endometrial cancer risk. It also can mean problems with coagulation, like stroke risk. So we want to get this half of estrogen, but we don't want that half. And what phytoestrogens do is they encourage this half to respond. They help your body work better with alpha receptors, but they plug up the beta receptors. So you're basically putting a key in the good lock and then breaking a key off in the bad lock so nobody can get in. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, kind of along similar lines of phytoestrogens, which are, are plant-based estrogens. Is that correct? What about, how do you feel about flax? Yeah, wonderful thing. So its effects are less so through what it contains and more so in terms of how it acts on the bowel flora. So yeah, we, we make hormones and we regulate hormones. And that's a big interplay between our liver and our intestinal flora. And flax is rich in compounds that help in terms of glucuronidation. 
that's one of the ways that we package and convert estrogen into safer metabolites. And yeah, flax. So flax, we can think about flax oil, flax seed, and ground flax. And these effects are primarily going to show up from ground flax. Flax seed, wonderful thing. It kind of blows right on through. You don't break it down very well. And sure. flax oil, rich in alpha linolenic acid, but really none of those fibers. So you, those fibers are most available in ground flax, and they're very useful in that way. Okay. All right. Good to know. That's something that I feel like has helped me. So I was had some personal curiosity there, but I also know, you know, some of my Thrivers Club members will ask, like, should I be using flax? I'm afraid to use it because I don't want to mess with my estrogen or I'm estrogen dominant or. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the cool thing is that plant hormones, they don't mess with our hormones. They make our body more able to regulate our hormones. They're not like just throwing hormones on the pile. They're giving your body mm -hmm. more capacity to regulate the hormones that are already there. Yeah. When I did some digging on it, I, I came across the, the idea that it's someone described it, uh, flax as, a um, like an estrogen adaptogen. Mm -hmm. There's a term mean? called CIRM or selective estrogen response modifier. And that's what many phytoestrogens do. Okay. That's so interesting. I mean, it really, you know, food as medicine, it's such amazing, incredible stuff. And I, I guess, you know, there's so many different ingredients I'd love to ask you about. Are there any that stand out for you that you just love to cook with that you, you know, that like kind of shine in your mind and in your, your cooking at home? Boy, so many. Um, I'm looking at a list right now in front of me, hard to pick. Uh, boy, beets are pretty cool. I mentioned them a bit earlier. Uh, the benefits for athletic performance of beets, no joke, they actually exceed what some illegal performance enhancing blood doping can do. They're and they're and they're safe. So they're a really big deal. Endurance athletes are all about beets. And some of the things when I talked about the, the fatigue chapter, some of the data came from things that help people who are tired because of a particular reason, like they had a stroke or they had chemo, others who just had chronic fatigue and no clear diagnosis, but then also things that gave athletes a boost. And that's relevant even for folks that don't consider themselves an athlete, because all of us want to generate energy more effectively, you know? So yeah, if something can help an endurance athlete, that can help any of us just get through our days more effectively. Yeah. It's, you know, they're so humble, but they really do shine, don't they? I'm, I'm with you. I'm a huge fan of beets. I actually just had a big bowl of beets, leftover roasted beets for lunch with some leftover oh, yeah. chicken and <laughs> I like to, you know, slow roast them in the oven. Mm. They're in there for a long time and it just brings out a lot of the natural sweetness. But That's do you have favorite. a favorite way to use them, eat them? That's actually them? it. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're great in juicing. They're great in, they're great boiled too, but I, I love roasted beets a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're great shredded too. I mean, that's, you can mm -hmm. do, you don't have to even cook them. I mean, they're great just in salads. I love that. One of the in the book, I talked a lot about batch cooking too, having certain things ready to go. And one of my favorites is to take root vegetables like beets and parsnips and turnips and uh, rutabaga, these humble things, and always having some just roasted on the ready and you throw them in the fridge afterwards and take those out. And they're great for snacks or side dishes. And yeah. 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 Batch cooking makes, makes it doable, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. C, it's been so much fun talking food and recipes with you. We've learned so much from you today. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Always fun to hang out with you, Jenny. Once again, for the listeners, the book is The Hormone Healing Cookbook featuring 
over 80 recipes to balance hormones and treat fatigue, brain fog, insomnia, and more by Dr. Ellen Christensen. It's available anywhere books are sold or via the direct link in the show notes. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Thyroid Healthy Bites. If you've enjoyed the show, please don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave a review. Your support truly does help so much. So thanks in advance for taking just a moment to do that today as we wrap up the episode. I'm Jenny Maher wishing you happy cooking, happy thriving, and the best of health. See you next time.